Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Tis the happy song. Sorry. Hello and welcome to episode 3-253 of the Run Run Live podcast. And my mission here is to help you folks understand and transform your lives and do so in the context of endurance sports. And we have a great and special show for you today. I have an awesome interview with the one and only Dick Hoyt from Team Hoyt. And you folks all know Dick and his son Rick, whom he pushes in races, and Rick and Dick have really changed the world. And we always talk about the transformational power of endurance sports. And Rick and Dick not only transformed their own lives, but they led the way and changed the world as well. And I mean that. And this, my friends, is the power of simply putting one foot in front of the other. Simple steps can lead to world-changing results, and that should be a lesson for us all. I also continue with part three of my life balance framework series by giving you my system theory of self as promised. These first three pieces on life balance frameworks lay the foundation for more detailed, tactical, inspirational pieces and give you something to think about as well. So I hope you take them in the spirit that they are uh, presented. I also do a final piece on heart rate training. (laughs) Like, we don't get enough talk about heart rate training. I have been making stellar progress in my training since we chatted last. I have transitioned to the roads and have gotten in some quality runs with no real dire consequences. I'm starting to feel that wonderful race fitness, and it just feels awesome. I did a a two-and-a-half-hour training run, for example, with Ryan a couple weekends ago on the roads, and I've even done a tempo run on the roads. The holidays did take a little toll, and I managed to put on some weight, but, you know, that doesn't bother me at all if I can train, and I'm training well. Coach has introduced a new balance workout that involves using a BOSU ball. And a BOSU ball is that half of an exercise ball, a hemisphere of an exercise ball that you put on the ground and you stand on it and you balance while you're doing your core work. And I got to tell you, the first time I tried this workout, I could not stay on that BOSU ball and kept getting launched across the gym at odd angles with the dumbbells in my hands. But I've got to figure it out now. And it's a great core workout, plus balance. It gives you that balance. And especially since I do it in my bare feet, so I can really grip that thing with my toes. When we last talked, I was bringing Buddy, the old wonder dog, down to get a suspicious mass removed by the doctor. And it turned out to be just another fatty lump. He's got fatty lumps all over him, so nothing to be worried about. But he was, under doctor's orders after the surgery, to be inactive for 10 days. Well, you guys know Buddy. We were given the impossible task of keeping him inactive. So the first two days he was sore, recovering, but by the third day he was of the opinion that he was 100% and he should be out doing stuff and he was just mental with the forced inactivity. So Monday my daughter took him down to get his stitches out this week and the doctor, she started laughing saying that there's really no need to take the stitches out because he's already taken them out on his own. He's just an overachiever. He got the green light, and so I took him out into the woods for a seven-mile mud run. And so it was that equilibrium was returned to the universe. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. The System Theory of Life Balance In our ongoing series of life balance, we have so far discussed two topics. The first was a discussion on how to visualize and balance the different areas in your life. The second was an exercise in defining self or what makes you as an individual being tick. And what I'd like to share with you today is another useful model that allows you to influence and change the outputs, the results of your life. When I first graduated from school, 
I had a degree in business and a degree in English, and my first job was in high tech at a computer manufacturing company. And in this company, I was surrounded by engineers, and I was impressed by how these engineers, by dint of their education and technical knowledge, were confident that they knew everything. They had a discreet, certain answer for every question. And having discreet and certain answers to every question seemed like an appealing thing, so I went back to school at night and got an engineering degree. And it turns out that these guys, and yes, they were all guys, had no more answers than anyone else. In a sense, they had answers, but they were to smaller questions about the workings of the physical world. I did learn some things. I did acquire some useful proofs and constructs that I could apply to these larger questions. As, an, as a side note, it's a shame that we have isolated math and physics and logic from the metaphysical. So maybe this is more expedient, a more expedient way to feed technical competence into industry. But I think the old Renaissance model of combining the two would produce a far more interesting and thoughtful populace. So one of the things I picked up was what I've come to call the system theory of self. At the most basic level, this uses the construct of system dynamics to model cause and effect in changing your outcomes. We treat the concept of self-improvement like any rational engineer would. In this theory, you are a discrete system, like a computer, that can be discreetly defined, understood, designed, programmed, and fixed. Now, of course, the fallacy of this theory is that humans are not discrete, nor are they rational. <laughs> they are infinite and they are irrational. Nonetheless, <laughs> it's an interesting and useful construct that allows us to aggregate and direct our energies and actions towards specific outcomes. It allows us to approximate a rational framework onto our irrational selves. So why is this useful? In part one of this series, we talked about the crucial end goal of achieving life balance by understanding the interplay and the trade-offs of different areas in your life in the context of finite time. In part two, we went through an exercise of defining what your self is, of understanding what drives you so you could better direct that balance in alignment with what is important to you. In this, the third topic... We talk about a framework for change to direct and control the outputs that define the components of your life balance. And I know that sounds a bit complex and academic, but we're, what we're doing is simply determining the best way to create change to support your life balance goals. And today we're going to discuss a framework for this change and why it is so hard to create meaningful and sustainable change in our lives. So let's begin, like I always begin, get a piece of paper. Let's begin and draw a picture of our self as a simple system. First, draw a box that represents the system of you. And we, we talked last time about how this is a black box, and we can only infer what's inside the box of our self by observing the patterns in the output. So next, you have your box. Now next, draw an arrow entering the box and an arrow leaving the box, exiting the box. The arrow going into the box represents all the inputs to your system, and the arrow coming out of the box represents the outputs, the results. So your system, yourself, is unique. It will uniquely react to the inputs you give it. By changing or manipulating the inputs, you can manipulate and change the outputs. So I have created a simple chart that is part of this post on my website to illustrate this, if you would like to see what I'm talking about. Or you can draw your own pictures. In your environment, there are an infinite number of inputs, and some of these inputs you control, for example, exercise, would be a physical input to your system, and being in shape would be the output or the result. There are emotional inputs as well, for example, Positive thinking and consumption of positive media would be an input, and a positive attitude towards life might be the output or the result. There are relationship inputs. Interacting with compelling and thoughtful people as an input may result in you being more compelling and thoughtful as an individual as a result. 
as examples. As you can see, this is a useful construct to explain how your system reacts and transforms inputs into results. At any given point in time, your system is in a stable state with a consistent set of inputs and a consistent set of outputs. This is referred to as a steady state. The challenge for most people is that they are not entirely happy with their current steady state. They aren't happy with the results of the current system configuration. Aha! The exciting part of this discussion is that by using this construct, you can change the state of your system by manipulating the inputs. And of course, you need to know what outputs you want, and that was what parts one and parts two were about. It seems simple, but there is a catch. Human systems don't like to change, and they will do their best to go back to the original steady state, the previous state. Most people will get to the point where they're fed up with their current state, and they will decide to make a big change. And what happens when you insert a big change into a steady state system? When that arrow going in, and you can see this in the accompanying illustration, you draw a big pulse, a big bump going into the system. So what happens when you push a big pulse into a steady state system? What is the real life example here? So let's say you go on a crash diet or you decide to get off the couch and run 10 miles as your first workout ever. Or you walk into your boss's office and tell him or her to go to hell. These are major shocks to your system and will indeed change your state, but typically only in the short term. What human systems are natural systems, and in absence of continued consistent pressure on the input side, they will oscillate for a bit, they'll, they'll vibrate for a bit due to that pulse, but then they'll return to their previous steady state and you won't have gained anything. But there's also another possible outcome to the shock the system approach. If the change pulse is big enough, it can permanently change the system. It's like overloading or burning out the circuit. You can have a permanently changed state as a result. And this can be good, like being forced to find a career path that is rewarding because the old one is blown up and you can't go back to it. Or it can be bad, like instead of being unhappy, you're now unemployed and unhappy. There are valid reasons to do this, but it's a bit of a high-risk scenario. Pulses or one-time quick fixes tend not to be effective in the long run because A, human systems resist change, and B, human systems always try to regress to the previous steady state in absence of other stimuli. These types of changes are too hard to sustain and don't typically lead to long-term changes in your outcomes. They might even lead you to conclude that change is impossible to your steady state. A better way to get the desired output, a desired outcome, is to make smaller, logical, sustained changes. If you can sustain the pressure on the inputs in a direction or vector that you want, you can create sustainable change in the outcomes of your life. There's also an illustration for this point in my post. If instead of a one-time pulse, you input a consistent level of change, you can permanently change not only the outcome, but you reconfigure the system itself to a new, more desirable steady state. The output will still oscillate, but if the change in input is persistent, the output will then stabilize at a new level, at a different state, and you have changed your outcome, and you have changed your state. So why do you care? Why is this helpful? It is helpful because if you know what state of life balance you want to achieve, you can create a set of change in inputs that are rational, consistent, and persistent to move your system in that positive direction over the long term. Most people live in a steady state created by their environment. They were never taught or told that they could influence this, but you very much can. The information you consume, the people you interact with, every small decision you make is an input that you can control. 
Life is chaos, but out of that chaos we can create patterns. We can't control every infinite point of influence, but we can grab a hold of the major handles and move the cloud of chaos in a direction that suits our purpose. And as you study the inputs of your system, of yourself, you will start to realize that there is or there are a relatively small number of input factors that cause or create your steady state. And these few things you can create change momentum in, and it will shift your entire system and change your outcomes. Small pushes at these points of leverage will move the ship inexorably towards your desired destination. I'll let you go here. (laughs) I'll let you chew on, cogitate these thought exercises. What does your life balance look like? What is your current steady state? What are the characteristics of yourself? What state would you like your life balance to be, to be reflective of and true to yourself? What changes to your inputs will you make to rebalance your system in that direction? These are all strategic points that we may come back to as we explore more tactical supporting topics, but I hope that I've given you some foundational thoughts on how to achieve life balance and, let's face it, sustained happiness in that life balance. One final thought. As you look at the system theory of self, consider this. Relationships and your interaction with others are both an input and an output. The way you interact with and influence others is an input to their system of self. This is a powerful responsibility because if we can all change our states, it creates a a virtuous feedback cycle a positive feedback loop that will then change the state of humanity as a whole. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Dick. Yes. I've known you guys for a long time, you and Ricky, and it's... uh. It's it's commonplace now to see people running for causes and and using our sport, you know, for higher higher purposes and charities. But when you guys started, there was none of that stuff, especially here in New England, where you know runners were real runners back in the the seventies, right? Right. There was, there was none of this uh, charity stuff. No. Nope. So you're you're you were you were you guys were pioneers. Yeah, thing. I guess we've been pine- we've been pioneers now for quite a few years, and it's all over the world. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And you were telling me you're running your 31st Boston Marathon this year. That's right. This year will be our 31st uh, Boston Marathon, and it's, it's really a special one for us because they're putting a bronze statue, life-size bronze statue, at the starting line in Hopkinton this year, and actually it's going to be dedicated on the 9th of April. This wow. Year. So it's uh, it's really awesome, and it's an awesome statue. And, you know, when Rick was born, they said, you know, forget about him, put him away, put him in an institution. He's going to be nothing but a vegetable for the rest of his life. And now he this vegetable's turning into a bronze statue that people are going to be able to see for years and years and years. And you know what's amazing? I was looking at it, and uh, Ricky and I are about the same age. Yeah, Rick is 50 years old. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Considering what they told you guys when he was born, you know. Yep, yep. They said he never turned do anything, and you know he's he's graduated from public high school. He's graduated from Boston University. He lives all by himself in his own apartment. And Rick and I have competed in 1,100 races in the past 34 years. And the Boston thing is amazing because they wouldn't even let you guys run. I mean, originally, right? It's amazing because when we first started, nobody wanted anything to do with us. You know, we started off trying to do 5Ks and, you know, uh, 10Ks and stuff like that, and nobody wanted us in the races. But, you know, our, our motto is, yes, you can. There isn't anything you can't do as long as you make up your mind to do it. And so everybody that said, no, you can't do this, well, we just found a way of doing it. And it was just unbelievable. And actually, the Boston Marathon... In order for us to be official, they said I had to qualify in Rick's age group. And at the time, Rick was in his 20s, and I was in my 40s. And so that meant we had to run under two hours and 50 minutes just to qualify. 
And I think that was their excuse to get rid of us because this, they said there's no way a 40-year-old guy could push his 20-year-old son in a wheelchair and break two hours and 50 minutes. So we went down that fall. We went down to Washington, D.C. to the Marine Marathon, and that's called the People's Marathon. And anybody can run in this marathon, and they always get over 15,000 runners. Well, we ended up running this marathon in two hours, 45 minutes, and 17 seconds. And that qualified both Rick and I for the Boston Marathon. And we've been official entrants ever since. Matter of fact, they did time us when they said we couldn't do it in 81, 82, and 83. And they do have the results. And they had it on, on the uh, Internet, you know. And so we took them all off. And we had Team Hoyt shirts made up with all our Boston Marathon times. So it was nice that they included you know, the first one that we ever did. And uh, as a matter of fact, 1996, the 100th running in the Boston Marathon, Rick and I were honored as Centennial Heroes by the BAA and their sponsor, John Hancock. So you can see we've come a long way, and we've been able to break down a lot of barriers along the way. Yeah, so why don't you, uh, why don't you back up and introduce yourself and give us the, you know, give us your story, like you okay. would in your, your many speaking engagements, Dick. <laughs> yeah, well, um what happened? Uh, Rick was the first born, and uh, what happened when he was when he was being born? He turned himself over, and the umbilical cord got twisted around his neck, and he was in such a position it took a matter of minutes before the doctor could get at it and untangle it. Well, that caused a lack of oxygen to Rick's brain, which caused brain damage, which is cerebral palsy. Now, at the time, we knew there was something wrong with Rick, but we did not know exactly what. So the doctors made an appointment for us to see a specialist when Rick was eight months old. We took Rick to the specialist, and they did all kinds of tests. And the tests come back, and they were very negative. They said, forget Rick. Put him away. Put him in an institution. He's going to be nothing but a vegetable for the rest of his life. And on the way home from that doctor's appointment, Rick's mother and I, we cried. But then we talked, and we said, no, we're not going to put Rick away. We're going to bring Rick home and bring him up like any other child. And this is what we have done. Rick has been mainstream and included all of his life. Today, Rick is 50 years old. He still can't talk, use his arms and his legs, but he's graduated from public high school. He's graduated from Boston University. He lives all by himself, and we have competed in over 1,100 athletic events. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear that story, they, they, they say, you know, how, how did Rick graduate from high school and college if he can't talk? Well, we knew Rick was very bright. We could tell by looking in his eyes that he was paying attention and he was looking right in our eyes, and we knew he understood what we were saying. So we taught him the alphabet and the numbers, and we did a lot of reading with Rick. And then we tried to get him in a public school, and they said, no, he doesn't understand. He won't be able to learn. So we went and met some engineers from Tufts University in Boston, and we talked to them, and they said the same thing, that Rick wouldn't be able to learn. So we told the engineers to tell Rick a joke. They told Rick a joke, and Rick cracked up laughing. Right, yes. Wow, maybe there is something there. So they said, if you can get us $5,000, we'll build a communicating device for Rick. Now, you got to remember, that was 45 years ago, and $5,000 was a lot of money. But the Hoyt family raised the $5,000. We gave it to the engineers, and they built what was called the TIC, the Tufts Interactive Communicator. And the engineers were coming to our house, and everybody's betting what are the first words Rick is ever going to say. Well, his mom's saying it's going to be, hi, mom, and me to dad, no, it's going to be, hi, dad. Well, the Boston Bruins were going for the Stanley Cup, and the very first words Rick ever said was, go Bruins. Ah. So, so we knew right then and there that he understood everything, and he loved sports. So we took Rick with his tick to the school department. The principal of the school took him in a room with some teachers, and they left us outside because before they were saying we were answering for him. They asked right. questions. He answered them correctly, and they had to accept him in public school. And then after that, the federal government came out with a grant, and they were building these computers so other people could use them to communicate. So what led you guys to get involved in racing? Well, Rick was attending a South Middle School out in Westfield, Massachusetts, and his gym teacher got him involved in all the gym activities with all the other children. And he was also the basketball coach at Westfield State College, and he used to take Rick to the basketball games. 
Well, at one of the basketball games, they made an announcement that one of the lacrosse players from the college was in an accident. He was paralyzed from the waist down. So they're going to have this charity road race to try to help him raise some money so he could pay his medical bills. Well, when Rick came home from that game, he told me all about it. And he said, Dad, I have to do something for him. I want to let him know that life goes on even though he's paralyzed. I want to run in the race. Well, at the time, I was 40 years old. I was not a runner. I used to run maybe three times a week, a mile each time, just to try to keep my weight down. And that's all we had was a Mulholland wheelchair, which was form-fitted, prescription-made to Rick's body. And we had a hard time pushing him in it, never mind running in it. But we went down to the race. It was a five-mile race, and they put the number double zero on Rick's chair. And the gun went off, and Rick and I took off with all the other runners. Well, everybody thought that Rick and I would just go to the corner and turn around and come back. Well, we didn't. We finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. And when we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears, which was a very powerful message to me. If you think about it, somebody can't talk, use their arms and their legs, and when they're out there running, the disability disappears. He called himself Freebird because now he was free and able to be out there competing and running with all the other runners. And he actually had a sign made up that said Freebird that he attached to his running chair. And actually, that's one of his favorite songs. But right. you know, there's only one thing after that race. I was disabled. <laughs> I didn't know you had so many muscles in your body that could ache. <laughs> I, I could hardly walk for two weeks. So I told Rick, I said, if we're going to continue running, we're going to have to get a chair built so I wouldn't be hurting as badly. So we went up to Greenfield, New Hampshire, at Crotchet Mountain, and we talked to an engineer up there, and we told him what we wanted for a chair. And he just got some old pipes and tubings, and he welded them together. And then we got an insert for Rick to sit in. Now, this chair had two wheels in the back and one wheel in the front. At the time, the regular wheelchair athletes were using the four wheelchairs, and there were no baby joggers at the time. Right. Think if we had patented that chair? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All they had was your old-style wheelchairs back then. Right. With the bogey right. wheels in front. Right. We had a, a a bike company that was working with us at the time, and I told them, I said, you have to build these chairs because other people are going to want them. Well, they just looked at us, and they turned around and walked away. Five years later, they were all buying baby joggers and selling them. But Rick and I weren't thinking about that. That's all we were thinking about was getting a chair built so we could run together. And that's what we call a running chair. We took yeah. our new running chair over to what we call our first official race, which was over in Springfield, Massachusetts. When we got over there, nobody could near us, nobody had talked to us, and nobody wanted us in the race. But finally, the overall race director said that we could run. It was a 10K race, 6.2 miles. There were 300 runners in this race, and Rick and I finished 150th out of the 300 runners. So after that, Rick and I go to a different town and a different city and run, and finally people started coming up to us and talking to us, and they could see that Rick had a personality and a sense of humor, and he loved to be in the middle of running with everybody else. But, you know, at that time, I had a lot of families that were sending letters and phone calls to me, and they were very upset with me. They said, what are you doing, dragging your disabled son through all these races? Are you just looking for glory for yourself? What they didn't realize, it was Rick that was dragging me through all these races. So that fall, Rick and I sat down and talked about what we wanted to do the following year. We decided we wanted to run the Boston Marathon. So we applied to the BAA. And they turned us down. They said, no, you can't run with us because you're different than anybody else. Yeah. Because, you know, the Boston Marathon has a wheelchair division, so we applied through them. But they also turned us down saying, no, you're different than us. You can't run with us. Because, see, they propel the wheelchairs themselves where I was pushing Rick. But what right. they did say is, if you want, you can line up behind us and run. And that's what we did in 1981. So essentially you, you went back... You went back with all the bandits in the back. <laughs> was that? You got in the back with all the bandits. No, we got right behind the wheelchair athletes. Okay. So we started, you know, at the same time as the wheelchairs, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's, but people have to remember that running in in the Boston area in the 70s is so much different than it is today. Today, right. There were no, like, 
casual runners. It was all really hardcore stuff. Right. And the, and there was probably what two thousand people in the Boston Marathon. Yeah, that's about all it was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Now they have to turn them out, turn them away. Right. So you guys must have stood out like a sore thumb when you showed well, we up. Did, at these events. Everybody say, "What is this?" You know, nobody could believe it. You know, and then you know we ran our first marathon in three hours and eighteen minutes, and you know that 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 was just unbelievable to everybody. You know, they never thought that we'd be able to run that type of time. You know, and at that time, three hours and eighteen minutes, we beat eighty-five percent of all the other runners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can. I've run a lot of races with you guys, and back in back, you know, fifteen years ago, I knew I was having a really good race if I passed you. Yeah. That's what a lot of people say, yeah. You know, I was just, I was looking at some of our old records and stuff because we, we really haven't had a chance to see actually what we have accomplished. And, I mean, the times that we have is just mind-boggling to me. You know, a five-miler at the PR is 27 minutes. Yeah. Okay, it's around 35 minutes, you know. And it, that 240 marathon, you know, it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it is. Plus, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. You're pushing pushing a, a, a an adult in a chair and head yeah, That's great. Right. Yeah. So it, and all this stuff this spun up into uh, you started doing triathlons and uh, Ironman and all kinds of other stuff. Right. Yeah. It was uh, 1984. Uh, Rick and I were down on Cape Cod running the Falmouth Road Race, and Dave McGilfrey, you know, he has a sports enterprise, and he is now the director of the Boston Marathon approached me and he said, Dick, you look like a good triathlete. You have to do triathlons. Well, I looked at Dave and I said, only if I can do them with Rick. Well, he looked at me as if I was crazy and he turned around and walked away. Well, the whole year went by and went down doing a Falmouth road race again and Dave come up afterwards. He said, come on, Dick, you're in better shape now. You have to do triathlons. Well, I gave him the same answer, only if I can do them with Rick. He said, okay, Dick, why don't you see what type of equipment that you can get built so you and Rick can compete together. At the time, I did not know how to swim. I hadn't been on a bike since I was six years old. And here we are committing ourselves to our first triathlon in nine months. Well, I was in the process of changing jobs, and it meant I had to buy a house. And I said, well, if we're going to do triathlons, I don't know how to swim. I'm going to buy a house on a lake. And that's what I did. I bought a house in Holland, Massachusetts, on Hamilton Reservoir. And I'll never forget the first day I went down and jumped in that lake. I almost drowned. <laughs> I, I just sank. I couldn't swim more than 12 feet. So every day I'd come home from work and I was able to swim a little bit further and a little bit further. And then that winter, I joined the YMCA so I could continue swimming. Now, in the meantime, we were in the process of getting the rest of the equipment built so we could compete. And we did not get the equipment till the day of the triathlon, so we didn't know if it was going to work or not. Now, most people, when they do the first triathlon, they do what's called a sprint triathlon which yep. consists of maybe a third of a mile swim, maybe a 9- or 12-mile bike, and maybe a 5K run. Well, the yep. one we picked was a mile swim, a 40-mile bike, and a 10-mile run. And it was a very hilly course, and it was a very hot day. But we ended up finishing that triathlon again, coming in next to last but not last. And yep. we enjoyed triathlon so much that we call ourselves triathlon freaks, and we have competed in over 270 triathlons now. Yeah, including the big one, right? You want Kona, right? Yes, we did, and uh, it was it was amazing because uh, actually Dave McGilfrey knew the people out in Kona, so so we we he helped us out a little bit, you know, talking to the race directors and stuff, and they tried to make all ex- kinds of excuses, safety excuses, you know, why we wouldn't be able to do it, like it gets dark at 6 o'clock at night and all that stuff to keep us from running into all the other runners and stuff. And But we had an answer for them for all the, the reason why they said we couldn't do it. So we ended up doing our first one. It was in 1988, the one in Hawaii, and I made a big mistake. Uh, uh, what I did, you know, I was very concerned with the heat and everything out there. I was concerned about Rick getting dehydrated and stuff. So I drank this Gatorade replacement fluid and I didn't know anything about it but you're not supposed to drink the replacement fluid unless you're competing or after you complete compete you know so then what happened was we got out in a swim and we had a great swim going we had made the turnaround we're coming back in and uh, all of a sudden I got paralyzed and I could not move my arms and I couldn't well I don't kick anyway when I'm swimming but anyway 
and it, we ended up, you know, not making a swim cutoff time. So they, they, you know, picked us up in the boat and took us in. And I, I vomited it for about four hours after that. So we had a yeah. serious problem. So what we did is we applied, you know, I talked to Dave about it a little bit more, and we applied to do it the following year, 1989. And because of the way we behaved ourselves and didn't, you know, complain and all this and that, that they, they said that we could do it again in 1989. And we ended up doing it and completing it, and it was really great. And and actually, uh, with, I forget how many am yeah, we've done six Ironmans. We did Ironman Canada, we did Ironman Germany, we're over in Japan. We just love triathlons. And matter of fact, um, was it four years ago, uh, they had, uh, it was the 30th anniversary of the Hawaiian Ironman, and up until that point, there only been 25 people in the world inducted into the Ironman triathlon. Well, Rick became 26, and I became 27, and he beat me again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he always beat you, huh? Guys ahead. Well, we did have we did have one race in Boston, the Boston Police Chase. We came to the finish line, and I turned him around, and I went across backwards ahead of him to beat him, and he just cracked up. He had so much <laughs> fun with it. But it's just amazing, you know, what people didn't want us, and now here we are doing the Ironman, you know, it's the World's Championship, Ironman Triathlon in Kona, and being inducted into the Hall of Fame. How has this transformed yours and, uh, and Ricky's life, this whole process? Uh, it's just it's just unbelievable, you know. Um, you know, I, if, if it wasn't for Rick, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be alive today because I had a heart attack in, in uh, 2002. We were down uh, doing a Hyannis half marathon to get ready for the Boston Marathon, and I ended up having a heart attack, and, and while we were running, I didn't even know it. That's all I had was a tickle in my throat, and I was spitting, and I don't like to spit because a lot of times when people spit, they're, they're spitting on Rick. And I always have a water bottle on Rick's chair, you know, plastic water bottle I drink from. But I was stopping at the water stops and drinking water, and that's not like me. And actually, we were having a great race. We had done 12 miles, and we were first place in my age group. But I stopped at this last water stop, and a guy in my age group passed us, you know, so we, we weren't able to catch him. But after that, we did four more races, and we took first place in my age group. And I Excuse me, I still had a tickle in my throat, and it was four weeks before Boston. So uh, I went to my doctor. She, she said she, she wanted to give me an EKG, and I said, now, when you give me an EKG, it's going to look like I'm underneath a massive heart attack because that's the way all of mine have been. So she said, okay, and I went home that night, and I get up the next morning. I'm driving to the club to work out, and she says, where are you going? And I told her I'm going to the club to work out, and she said, no, you're not. You've had a heart attack. You're coming back here. And what she did is she checked my EKG from the prior year, and there was a difference in them. So they brought me in, and they gave me a stress test, and I didn't know what a stress test was. But I guess most people are only on on it for about like 13 or 14 minutes, while I was going for a half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> they had people coming out and looking at me and stuff like that, like I was a freak or something. And I said, I don't know what's going on. What are you trying to give me a heart attack, you know? So they did all kinds of tests, and I had to have an angioplasty, and they ended up putting three stints in. And the doctor was going to still, he says, you're such great shape, we're still going to let you run the marathon. And this is four weeks before it. But what they did is they put me on the satin drugs, and yeah. I had all kinds of side effects. I had double yeah, infections. Yeah. Uh, severe chest pains, and I, I couldn't I couldn't run at all. I could hardly walk because of the satin and you know the, the, the drugs. And the doctor told me he says you know if you weren't in the shape you're in now you would have died 15 years ago. Yeah, that's so amazing. And they asked me to start running, I probably wouldn't have been around now. Yeah. So it's just it's just amazing. So in your you guys are have been busy for years. You know, every weekend, every day, you're doing stuff. How do you guys balance all the stuff that you have to do? And you worked full time too, Dick. Yes, at the time I I, I was in the military uh, for 35 years, and what I used to do was I used to be getting up at five o'clock every morning, and I wasn't getting home until eight o'clock at night to do deal with my job, and and to keep get myself in the shape that I thought I had to get in shape. You know, 
to, to do an Ironman triathlon, especially the way we do it. You know, I have to pull Rick in a boat, and then we have to bike. You pull in the boat for 2.4 miles, then you got to bike 112 miles. Well, with Rick, me, and the bike, we go 400 pounds. So yeah. try doing that, going up the hills and hitting the wind out there in Hawaii, and then afterwards you you got to run a full marathon. So. It, it's it's not as easy as everybody thinks it is. It, it's it's just that we've got ourselves conditioned and and we've been able to do it. And so yeah, those um those crosswinds on the bike out in Kona must be oh, must be really hairy when you've got the um, the rig with you. They really uh and you know the last the last hill is seven miles high going up there and it's all wide open, you know, so the wind is really blowing. So it's it's really is a t- it's a tough course. We, you know we've done the, the Ironman Canada and Germany and other Ironmans, and we actually did the the sprint triathlon which Dave McGilfrey had down in Cape Cod. You know, they call it not the sprint, the endurance triathlon down in Cape Cod. It's the same distance, but they can't use the Ironman logo unless they pay them. Right. You know, yeah. Pay them to yeah. Yeah. Part of the Ironman triathlon. Yeah. Yeah. You inspire a lot of people. Who inspires you? Well, Rick is the one that inspires me. He he motivates me. You know, he, you know, he, he. The easiest thing for him to do is to quit and not do anything. But he he's not that type. He's a, he's a fighter and he wants to do all these things. I mean, everything that he's done with his life, and they said he's going to be a vegetable, is just unbelievable. So he really inspires and motivates me. And there's a lot of people now that ask us, well, how do you guys keep doing it? You know, all these races and, and all 34 years, and Rick's 50, I'm 72, you know, keep going. And what happens is, you know, when we first started, nobody wanted anything to do with us. Now we're getting people that are emailing us, calling us up, and we're motivating them. And they're out there competing, and they're in the best shapes of their life, competing, and they want to thank us. So now they're inspiring Rick and I to continue we've had emails from a young lady that was ready to commit suicide and she saw our story and now she's out running and doing triathlons we've had drug addicts and alcoholics that are now clean because of our story and it's spread all over the world people want us to go to all different countries and now there's 40 franchises in the United States that are doing what Rick and I have been doing and the, the people from Virginia Beach, they're in Michigan, they're in Arizona, they're in South Carolina, they got one in Massachusetts, we got a call from Japan, and they all want to get started. And what they're doing is they're pushing kids who are physically challenged in chairs. And one of these days, there's going to be races where you're not going to be able to run unless you're pushing somebody that's physically challenged. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's quite the turnaround, huh? It is. It's just say, you can't run our race. You don't. You're not pushing somebody in a chair. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. This uh, this coming May, we're going to have probably fifty or sixty people coming up here in Holland, where we live, just to run in a five k race. And I mean, they're coming uh, from Arizona. They're coming from Virginia Beach. They're coming from Michigan. They're coming from the Carolinas and all over the place. And they're coming up here just to run in a five k race. And it's and it's an awesome experience because the people up here, you know, they got their children aren't physically challenged, and they saw what was happening. We had this for the last two years, and the buzz around in the town is next. Did you see those kids? They're out there getting pushed. They're all happy. They all got smiles on their face. They're having a great time. And here's my kids complaining and bitching and, and all this <laughs> and that. That I want this. I want that. You know. Yeah. So it's really changing a, a, a lot of lives throughout the world. Yeah, it's good perspective. So April 9th, they're going to put up a statue of you and Ricky at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. Is that what that's you said? Right. It's a life-size statue that's going to be put up at the, at the starting line. It's going to be dedicated on April 9th, yes. Oh, that's cool. I can't yeah, wait that to see really that. That is really cool. I mean, to us, that's like, you know, winning the Super Bowl or the World Series or something like that. You know, it's just amazing. It, yeah, it, so... So I'm collecting for you guys this year. Tell us a little bit about your um, your foundation. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we really appreciate people running. Uh, every year, uh, thanks to our sponsor, John Hancock, they're able to get us uh, 20, 20 numbers. And then, as a matter of fact, last year, our 30th run in the Boston Marathon, they were able to get us to 30 numbers, and we ended up with 14 people who had qualified that wanted to run for our foundation also. 
and and it, and it, we ended up raising over two hundred thousand dollars because you know you, you got to raise a minimum of, of five thousand dollars for these people that, that get get the numbers and stuff. And what we do is we help out these families who have physically challenged people and can't afford to send them away to camps and and get them involved in running and stuff. And we're big supporters of Easter Seals. Easter Seals it has done a lot for, for people, and they get the same mission that we have, the Hoyt Foundation. And as a matter of fact, the, on our 25th running of Boston Marathon, we dedicated the Easter Seals because when Rick was much younger, he was involved at the Easter Seals swim programs, the day camps and overnight camps. And then in the summertime, he'd go away for two weeks at a time, and it helped him to mature, and it was a lot easier for him to leave his family and go all the way into Boston to attend Boston University. And so we dedicated our 25th run, and we were able to raise over $350,000, and every penny of it went to Easter sales. And That's also, awesome. a year and a half ago, we were able to raise over a million and a half dollars that went to all nonprofit private organizations. So we're helping a lot of, pe- a lot of people out. As a matter of fact, Mike Gilango was the first president of the Hoyt Foundation. He's an amazing guy. Yep, he's on the Boston uh, Race Committee with McGilbury now. Right, yep. If people want to uh, contribute or learn more, where do they go? Just go to our website. we got a fantastic website, teamhoyt.com. That's our website. All right. And it's a great website. As a matter of fact, if they go into it, the opening, they'll see a picture of Rick and I, and there'll be an arrow there. And if they just press on that arrow, there's a video for four and a half minutes, and it will just blow them away. I guarantee you that. All right. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time out to have a chat with me. You have a great weekend. Happy holiday and enjoy your family. Yeah, you too. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Even more explanation of heart rate training. Last time we talked about this, I gave you some reasons to use heart rate training, but I didn't really explain some of the specifics. First, let's talk about the specific hardware required. To measure a heart rate, you need a device. In the old days, athletes would press a finger to the carotid artery in their neck and look at their watch counting the number of beats, heartbeats in 10 seconds, let's say, and multiply by 6 to get your heart rate in beats per minute. You can still do this, but it's a bit of a hassle in the middle of a workout. Instead, a few decades ago, specific heart rate monitors were engineered, and I remember that I had a digital watch one time that you could hold your thumb on, a sensor, and it would tell you your heart rate. The next generation of heart rate monitors were engineered by a company called Polar and could read your heart rate much more precisely. And some of you may remember that the old exercise bikes, ellipticals, and treadmills all used to have Polar heart rate capabilities. So they interfaced with the Polar heart strap. In the last decade or so, the ability to monitor your heart rate has become fairly ubiquitous in most sports watches and GPS devices. I now have a Garmin 305, and the 305 comes with an optional heart rate strap that allows you to get a very accurate reading of your heart rate throughout your entire workout. The strap, you have all seen these straps. They're worn on your chest, just under your boobs, and held in place by a stretchy strap. And it transmits wirelessly to the sports computer on your wrist. At any point in the workout, I can look at my watch and see what my heart rate is and what zone I'm in. And what's a zone, Chris, you may ask? Typically, there's five heart rate zones, and they relate to different ranges of your beats per minute. And some coaches use six zones to get more granularity, uh, but I'll talk to the five zone. I will tell you my heart rate zones. But I'm going to warn you, it's only for explanation purposes because, A, I'm a bit of a freak of nature when it comes to heart rate, definitely not average, and B, it will do you no good because your heart rate and your machine are different than mine. Instead, I'm going to give you a description of what the zones feel like and the effort level that they conform to. So let's start at zero. Zero is not technically a zone, but it is the bottom number of beats per minute. 
that your zones build from. And zero is going to be your resting pulse. So as you are sitting at your desk in the morning and you take your pulse, this will be your resting pulse, somewhere around there. And it will change throughout the day with different activities and different factors depending on what you eat and how you sleep and everything else. Now, the Western medical establishment will tell you in the textbooks that a resting pulse of 60 beats per minute is normal. If your resting pulse is different, it does not make you abnormal. It just means you're outside the average. My resting pulse is somewhere around 36 beats per minute. You know, part of this is due to a long-term participation in, in, in endurance sports, but mostly it's just hereditary. Now, I have friends who are athletes whose resting pulse is in the 70-plus range. It all depends on how your clock is set. And ironically, if you have to get a pacemaker installed, the doctors will reset your resting pulse to 60 beats per minute, whether you like it or not. Zone 1, the first zone, the first level of exertion, this is walking or very slowly jogging level of exertion. You'll not be breathing hard, and you will have no trouble speaking. And for me, this might be in the 90s or the low 100s. Now, zone two, the first useful exercise zone is zone two. And zone two is a slow run or maybe even a fast walk or a fast hike. You still aren't breathing hard. You can readily hold a conversation without having to catch your breath. And for me, this is the most minimal level of running I can do. And my zone would my zone two would be in the 120s, somewhere around 120. Zone three, now this is where you start to exert some effort. You start to breathe a little harder. You can hold a conversation, but you have to pause between words or sentences to catch a breath. It's comfortable, sustainable effort. Zone three is, is where you are most of the time on your bread and butter training runs. If you didn't care about heart rate and just went out the door and ran five miles with friends, it would most likely be in zone three. If I'm looking at a long race, like a marathon, I'm going to run the first two-thirds of that marathon in mid to high zone three and then close it in zone four or five. My zone three is in the 130s. Zone four is a very high level of exertion. This is your tempo pace effort and may come close to your 10K race effort average. In zone four, you're exerting yourself to the point that you can't speak in whole sentences and you struggle to talk. Zone four is where I do my tempo training. This is the level that I try to finish my training runs in. I finish my races in this level. And for me, this is in the high 130s and low to mid 140s. Now, zone five, then, is your maximum effort zone. This is where your heart rate is if you're doing a hill repeat or a speed interval workout. In zone five, you're fighting to maintain the effort level, and you can only speak in gasps, if at all. And the final heart rate measure that you want to know is the top end of the range, and it's called the max heart rate. Max heart rate is as high as you can make your heart go. The way you test this is to warm up for 20 minutes, go jog for 20 minutes, and then run a mile as hard as you can, all out. Take your heart rate at the end of this mile, and that will be your max HR or close to it. And you can you can read it after you finish throwing up. <laughs> My max heart rate is around 160. So many of the online resources will try to set your zones by using your max heart rate and subtracting some factor based on your age. Most of these are going to be fairly inaccurate. The best way to set your zones is to work with a coach who's familiar with heart rate training, get them to help you. Failing that... You can use one of the online formulas to set your zones and then adjust them as you collect more data. Avoid those posters in the gym where they show the heart rate zones. Those are totally wrong, totally useless. And unless you're spot on the average, uh, they're not going to be right for you. An easy way to get started with this, if you just have the device and you just want to get started, is just start wearing the device. Start wearing your heart rate monitor and collecting data points. See what your resting pulse is. See what your max is see what heart rate zones relate to which level of effort described here and you can work it out and get close enough through observation now the straps speaking of hardware the straps do have some peccadillos that you should be aware of in cold or dry weather they won't make contact well and they'll they will give you screwy results 
Now you can counter this by running the strap and the contact points under warm water. Some people lick them, <laughs> but you get it wet before you strap it on your chest and that will make the contacts work. Some folks use lube or gel for this. There is a, a specific gel for this you can buy and that will work. But, you know, I would recommend something water soluble so it doesn't get all mucky and wreck your device. But it's okay to experiment with. Once you have your a baseline, you can use heart rate as another useful data point in your healthy lifestyle quest. If your heart rate is high on a particular day or it's out of, out of uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem normal, it can tell you that you're getting a cold. Uh, it's very useful. It can tell you you ate something funny or you have jet lag or there's some other disturbance in the force. Now, note that I described your running heart rate here, your running zones, your biking and your other sport zones will be different. My Garmin lets me set zones for multiple sports. It also lets me set alerts based on the zones. So it will beep when I leave that zone, you know, if I'm going too fast or going too slow. And uh, I don't use this. I started trying to use it, but it's just really annoying. It's too nervous. So I don't or can't use the heart rate when swimming because the Garmin strap doesn't transmit through the water. They have different devices for that. Now, I have the advantage of growing up in the sport training by perceived effort. And I can tell by how hard I'm working pretty much what zone I'm in. In fact, most of the trail races we had before GPS, we just measured them by somebody who knows their pace going out and running that at a certain effort level and then backing into the distance. <laughs> right? And we were pretty close. Interestingly enough, once you learn the physical cues, you can guess your heart rate pretty accurately. So don't just slavishly rely on the devices. Understand the interplay of pace, perceived effort, heart rate, and put that knowledge into your, into your training. Over time, as your fitness improves, your heart rate zones will change and you may want to adjust them. As your fitness improves, you will be able to go in and out of uh, zones, transition between effort levels, faster and more efficiently. It'll adjust much quicker. And when you're fit, your heart rate will recover and stabilize very quickly during a workout. So I hope that helps. I think we've covered heart rate training sufficiently now. We can move on to something else. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. Okay, my intrepid friends, hopefully you have found this time well invested because we have come to the end of episode 3-253 of the Run Run Live podcast. Next time I have another compelling story of a young man who used his running to transform the world. I hope you uh, show up for that. I think... I'm falling into a nice every-other-week timing. Now, is that bi-weekly? I think that's bi-weekly, or is that bi-monthly? I don't know. As long as I have content, I'll keep to that schedule. As you heard today from Dick directly from, from, uh, from the horse's mouth, Team Hoyt is changing the world, and I'm running the Boston Marathon for them this year to help, and I would very much appreciate if you would help me help them change the world by clicking on the donation banner on the right side of my webpage at www.runrunlive.com. And thank you to those who have sent some largesse in my direction. The other project that I was talking about that I had cooking was a Kickstarter project to create an audio version of my second book of running stories. And this project has been kicked off. It has been funded and kicked off. And I have already produced the first two stories and distributed them to my investors for their listening pleasure. If you want to get in on this, <laughs> uh, this this uh, amazing story of entrepreneurialism. Uh, to get on that feed, you can find that link on my website and in the show notes as well. It was a fun experiment to see how Kickstarter works and this uh, micro-investment thing. And I'm signed up for a race. I have a race coming up in the next couple of weeks called the Derry Boston Prep 16-Miler. It's always a tester. It's uh, It's got extreme elevation, gain and loss, and a high probability of awful winter weather. And it's one of my favorite races. And if I survive that and my other long road runs, 
I'm right on track for Boston. If my progress keeps up at this rate, I might even have to take a shot at a qualifier. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. Well, it's a good world, and I'm excited about this year. So let's all treat every day as the only day we have and try to make a difference. Ciao. Thank you for riding along. My name is Chris, and that is CYKT Russell on all the social media and email systems. The podcast is free for you because I like doing it. So it is only your internal moral compass that will compel you to let me know what you think by leaving a comment on my website at www.runrunlive.com. Or even better, if you want to change my world, check out my books in regular Kindle or audio format. The links are on my website and in the show notes. And if you want to be kept in the loop, you can sign up for the email list on runrunlive.com as well. I will send you the show notes. So remember, love life, do epic stuff, and I'll see you out there.